Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Um, thank you for showing up early. Kudos to those of you who were already at the beach. I know there was a few hundred people there. Uh, greetings to those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park upstairs at the 01. So I want to just stay with this theme for a second of word association. I think it's pretty simple. You know how it works. You see a word and the question is, what do you think of? You see Chicago. Do you think Michigan Avenue? Do you think the lake? Do you think traffic? Do you think potholes? Do you think pizza? Do you think the Cubs? Well, what do you think of when you think of Chicago? Or uh, we put up spring break because it's been spring break. So do you think the beach and the sun and the sand? Do you think uh, hectic travel? Do you think no school? I mean, words connote feelings, images, uh, Christmas, you think, oh, family, presents, uh, it's a wonderful life, you know, red and green, eggnog, I don't know. There's just, just, there's a whole bunch of these things, and I'm not trying to set you up. Uh, I mean, the word association is often used to set you up, you know, you say, what do you think of when you think of this? And you say something, and you go, oh, well, now, isn't that interesting? So what does that say about you that you would think that about that word? Or what would Freud say that says about you that you would think that or that word? I'm, I'm just trying to get started here. So the word, no surprises, the word of the day is Easter. What do you think of when you think of Easter? Do you think Easter eggs, Easter bunny, brunch, do you think Jesus, empty tomb? Do you think the sort of the, the, the pivot point of history? I think of two things when I think of Easter. Uh, I think of more than that. I think of Jesus and the resurrection. And I, I, think of, I, think of, I think of a lot of things, but I think of two things because I apparently have been doing this job too long. So I think opportunity and challenge. And the opportunity is because people who don't normally show up at church show up on Easter. Uh, maybe that's you. So uh, we call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. So there are people who show up at Christmas and show up at Easter and generally no, no time in between. So maybe that's you. Uh, if that's you, then I consider this an opportunity to try and crack through the noise and say, hey, there's some things I want you to consider. But... I also consider today a challenge because, first of all, if you're a CEO, I know that you're probably not here happily. Um, at one point I heard uh, someone says, well, we were talking about the Geneva Convention and calling Child Protective Services on the way in today. So uh, I realize there are, there are protests that get lodged and you're sort of uh, not particularly interested. There's a challenge there. Or... Uh, the second challenge is that you're sitting next to someone for whom this is a great day, <laughs> right? So, so this is a high water mark. This is a this is a turning point. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that He is who He claimed to be. My sins can be forgiven. I can be reconciled to God. I get a clean start, right? Uh, all the things that Jesus promises, eternal life, those are true, and so. Easter is, is like the high holy holiday. It is the great day. It is the celebration. And so the challenge in that for me is what can I say that actually engages people across the spectrum? And there is a spectrum. Let's put it up here. So there are some who reject Christianity in general, but perhaps the resurrection in particular. 
religion is a refuge of weak minds. It's, it's, a, it's a leftover of a pre-scientific era when people were trying to explain a world they didn't understand. Uh, religion is something used to control people. It's, you know, you've got no interest. And then at the other end of the spectrum are those who are recharged by uh, the resurrection and recharged by Easter. Again, it's, it's all good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is, uh, so 1 Corinthians is one of the letters that Paul wrote. And in the first letter, in the 15th chapter, which is sort of all about the resurrection, Paul talks about it being a sort of a prototype. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a precursor. It is a, it is a preview of coming attractions. So Jesus gets a renewed body. And please understand that that is sort of the essence of what we celebrate. The idea is not that we live after we die in the memories of people, right? Like, you know, you'd be present every time a child laughs and you're present uh, at every beautiful sunset and present, you know, I will live on in memories of people. Nor is it that we live again in a mystical, spiritual, ethereal sort of never-never land experience, right? Which is what a lot of people think. Okay, well, uh, I, I die, my body goes into the ground, but my soul, my spirit lives on. Yes, except the, the promise of Easter is that there will be a day when we will get a new physical body. The claim is that heaven is more real than earth, right? More physical, more real, more eternal. And, and so there are people who say, wow, I'm really excited about a new body. Uh, I'm really excited about an eternal, perfect world. I'm excited about that. And so uh, we've got this spectrum. And, uh, and then it's not just that there's the two extremes. There's also this middle zone. Those who are rethinking uh, the resurrection. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're rethinking it for any one of a number of different reasons. It's, it is, uh, it, it, there's been some new information. Maybe today you're going to get new information. And, and thinking, oh, it's a physical resurrection. Gee, I hadn't quite connected those dots. Or uh, it's a historical claim. The, the claim of Christianity is not primarily religious or philosophical or moral. It's a historical claim. It's a, it's a claim that uh, not a long time ago in a faraway land this happened, but that, you know, very specifically, the New Testament is very bound by time and place, that this person lived and he died and the, the tomb was empty. And that is the launching point. And so maybe that new information or maybe spiritual hunger or maybe confusion and frustration, maybe a question of, is this faith really my faith or is it my parents' faith? So there may be some of you who are rethinking this. So here's the deal. What I want to do with the time that I have is just is, is challenge you wherever you're at on the spectrum and to challenge you to double down. And in particular, what I want you to understand is that um, you sort of have to go to one end of this uh, spectrum or the other, that the middle zone is not really a viable option. Rethinking is okay for a time, but you need to um, sort of end. You need to land the plane. 
And I, I just want to sort of be really clear that uh, the middle ground where lots of people want to hang out is not, um, it's just not a winning hand under any scenario. So uh, when I'm talking with people, whatever, at Starbucks or at a gym or on a plane or whatever, when I talk with people uh, and I sort of engage them in conversations about Jesus, what I often hear is, well, I think Jesus is a great um, a great person. I think he was a great moral leader. I think he was a, he was a, you know, he's a great, great teacher. He's, he's a wonderful person. But the implication is, but he's not anything um, more than that. He's not God. And um, so I sort of agitate and go, wow, that's, that's fascinating because that's actually not an option uh, because of what he claims. And so the, the, the options that we have are either that he is who he claims to be, the resurrection, Jesus is the most important person who ever lived, and the resurrection is the most important event because it, it proves that he's God and he rose from the dead, and we have to pay attention to everything that he says— or he's sort of nothing. I mean, maybe he's sort of like Mother Goose or Peter Pan, or he's like Jim Jones or David Koresh. I mean, those are the, those are the options that you get because he claims to be God. And for 2,000 years, people have sort of understood this. One of the earliest arguments, one of the earliest pushbacks on this middle zone that everybody wants to go to is so old that it is in Latin, it's outdus out homo malus, and it means he's either God or he's a bad man. Outdus, he's, he's God, or homo malus, he's a man that's bad. Those are the options that we have because he makes these incredible claims. And uh, I, I um, throughout the year, I lead up several book studies, and um, usually I, I invite I invite a particular kind of person to be in the book study. Not everybody's in this category, but most of them are men about my age who I see occasionally at the church. And I will just say to them, look, I see you every once in a while, you know, um, maybe once every few months. And my take is, could be wrong, but my take is, you're sort of here because uh, you're a good guy and you want to go along and your kids or your wife or somebody is making you show up. I I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that you want to, yeah, you're sort of, I want to be a good person. I want to be a better boss. I want to be a better employee. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better husband, father, whatever. And and so you sort of go, well, yeah, I'll go. What's, what's, you know, it's not what I want to do, but I'll go. Uh, And I said, but you don't really, you know, this is sort of an exercise in in family time, but that's about it. And uh, it's sort of her thing. So I just want to say, I'm going to offer you a chance to be in in a discussion with a bunch of other men who may or may not believe anything. You don't have to believe any of this. Uh, it's a safe chance to sort of show up, ask questions. You will not be embarrassed. Nobody in these groups cries. It's very, it's very buttoned up. Uh, I'm guessing that you're bright. You just sort of don't know anything about the Bible. You don't want to be embarrassed in some discussion that assumes that you know anything. So you want to be in the study. And when I ask this, but 90, 95% of the guys that I ask say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so uh, I leave these discussions, and I know that on about week two, it's a 
six-week study. On week two or three, I'm going to get the, the glazed-over, deer-in-the-headlights look when they're like, well, wait a minute. So what you're saying to me is that Jesus not only isn't a good teacher, but that he can't be a good teacher. What I think about him is not an option. I said, okay, time out. I'm not saying anything. Uh, We're just looking at what he says. And I'm not saying he's not a good teacher. He's an incredible teacher. Uh, But what I'm saying is you're not paying very close attention to what he teaches. You think that what he teaches is be kind, care for the poor, and, and, and be humble. And I said, yeah, yeah. And that's, he models that. He lives that. He embraces that. Yes, you're right to associate that with Jesus. But in terms of what he teaches, that's like 5%. Most of what he teaches is about himself. And it's a claim that he's God and, and that we need to follow him. I said, so if you say you're following him because he's a great teacher, you ought to clue in that uh, really you're not paying any attention to what he's teaching. So yeah, I'm pushing you to sort of just sort this out. And uh, it's very disruptive uh, to sort of be woken up to this, but I do it because to me, the middle zone where lots of people want to hang out is not like the flyover land where we tend to live. It's more like the demilitarized zone, which I put on that card. So the flyover zone, those of us who live in Chicago or the Midwest, we understand that those who live in New York or L.A. look at us, they look down at us, and they go, why would you ever live there, right? You either want to live in New York, you want to live in L.A., you want to live in on the East Coast, you want to live in D.C., or you want to live on, in California, but... The rest of the country is only what you fly over when you're going from one place to the next. And we understand that that's the way they think and, and that they're wrong, that you can have a great life in Chicago, that there's a lot of things going on in the rest of the country. But we don't want to tell them that because if they move here, then you forever are hearing about how much more important New York is in Chicago or how much cooler everybody in California is. So, so generally, the flyover zone is a great place to live. And, and in terms of this spectrum, right, you could land happily, healthily in the flyover zone. But in terms of Jesus, I'm saying it's not a flyover zone. It's, it's really more like the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, this barren, you know, sort of godforsaken strip of land where if you're there, you're probably getting shot at by at least one side. You don't want to be in the DMZ. You're, you're, you want to be on one side or the other. You don't want to stop there. And so I am always challenging people to say, look, uh, you ought to take a, a look at Jesus and at Christianity, but you ought to do it as a grown-up. You ought to understand that the camp you're landing in is not really an option. I understand you're saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious, which means, I think, is code for I'm deep but not crazy, right? I, 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 there's a lot going on here, but I'm not going to fly planes into buildings or force my views on other people. And I'm just saying, okay, well, that's interesting, whatever you think at least take a look at what is being presented and understand it. So what I want to do is just give you six really quick sort of summary statements about the Christian faith. And then I want to make sure that I block two of the paths that people often want to take. And then just say, so uh, those are your options. Where do you land? 
and, and you figure it out and go from there. So I have six basic uh, introductory summary statements about the Christian faith. Number one, Jesus is God. Uh, at Christmas, perhaps the last time that you were here, at Christmas we celebrated the Incarnation, which is when Jesus, who is God, became a person. So Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. He has always been God. 2,000 years ago, in sort of the fullness of time, at a, at a divine moment, he enters the world through a virgin's womb. While remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. And that's Jesus. He is the God-man. He is God. Number two, uh, he did this in order to represent us. So he shows up in order to represent us. Now, there's more to this point than I can explain. It would take hours, and I don't have hours. Uh, I barely have 30 minutes. And so, so let me just summarize this by saying that the Bible, uh, there's a whole lot in the Bible. There's a whole lot of things going on, but high level, it's all pointing to Jesus. So there's 39 books that make up the Old Testament. And these 39 books, can we pull up this slide? These 39 books uh, are basically, so we're pulling up a slide. There we go. The Old Testament is largely pointing ahead to the New Testament. There are promises made in the Old Testament that, that do not get fulfilled. And they are pointing ahead to where those promises will be fulfilled in Jesus. The New Testament is divided into a handful of books. This is the second slide. So the New Testament has the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus, the book of Acts, which is the first 30 years of the church, a whole bunch of letters that get written between various people in the book of Revelation. The, the New Testament has basically everything pointing back to the Gospels. And then the third and final slide here, the Gospels basically give us the life of Jesus. So we can pull, and the life of Jesus basically is all about his death and his resurrection. So literally, when you read the Gospels, half of the Gospel of John, a third of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all about the last week of Christ's life. It's not a true biography. It is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the third point. Jesus is God, number two. Uh, he showed up to represent us. Number three, the, the crucifixion and resurrection are the hinge points of history. And, and Jesus came not simply to die for you, but to die in your place. And so this all gets developed. You've got to read the Old Testament to really appreciate what's going on. Starting in the New Testament is sort of like walking into a movie uh, that's two hours long, and you're walking in with 15 minutes to go. It's really hard to catch up on all the nuances. But basically, Jesus shows up to represent us in death, to die in our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order, to, in order to satisfy the demands of love and justice, Christ dies in our place. His life and death do all kinds of other things. He fulfills the law, he fulfills prophecy and other things. But, but the crucifixion, his death, is the high watermark of history. Number four, he then rose from the dead. Christ overcame the grave. He defeats evil. Now, I've already said this is not simply a mystical, magical idea. It's not vaporous. He, he literally climbed out of, the out of the grave. His body was resurrected. But 
Here's the bigger point. The resurrection serves as sort of a confirmation of who Jesus claims to be. It's more than that, but it is an exclamation point. So you need to understand that the, the, the resurrection is hardly uh, the, the, the only miracle Jesus does. There's not that many miracles in the Bible. Some people think there's a miracle on every page. No, no, not really. There's a number of miracles in various, the beginning of the Bible. There's some sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Most of the miracles are happening around Jesus. And most of the miracles that are happening uh, around Jesus are there to, to teach who he is. Right? So they're to teach that he has power over sickness, that he has power over death, that he has power over evil, that he has power over nature. The miracles are also pointing to who he is and who he claims. The resurrection is a big exclamation point to say he conquers death and everything else he claimed was true. So it's, look, it's not, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not like you or I rose from the dead, right? everybody's going to die. You and I are going to die. Jesus died. There's no big deal to the fact that Jesus died other than it was in our place. The resurrection of Jesus is not like you or I rising from the dead. It's someone who claims to be God, someone who said he was going to rise from the dead, someone who did all kinds of other miracles. This is the person who rises from the dead. And the claim is that his resurrection confirms that he is God. Number five, fifth point. The whole thing, the whole story, the whole Bible comes to us in one sense as a story of God's love for us and his efforts to rescue and redeem us. So the Bible starts with good, Genesis 1 and 2, everything's wonderful. Then there's fall, darkness, depression, evil, death, everything sort of falls apart. A promise is made that he will send someone who will rescue and redeem us. We read all through the Old Testament waiting for that person to show up. They don't show up. Eventually in the New Testament we get that Jesus has shown up to rescue us. That's what he claims, by the way. Luke 19, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. That was my mission. Yes, I'm here to teach. I'm here to love. I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm here to fulfill prophecy. I'm here to do all those things. But my central purpose was to seek and save those who are, who are estranged from God. And I'm going to take upon myself their sin. I'm going to give them God's righteousness, my righteousness, so that they will live forever. That's what Jesus claims to do. And then the sixth point is, we're told we have to opt in. So what we're told is that all this happens, uh, Jesus, Jesus does all this, and then he says, do you want to be with me? Do you want to follow me? Right? If you want in, if you want me to represent you, I will, but you have to follow. So those six points represent very quickly, uh, very crassly, what we find in the Bible. So, <clears throat> two things I want to be sure you don't head down these paths, two common mistakes, and then you have to decide what you're going to do. The first mistake is, please do not think that what I'm talking about is religion. Because Christianity is not a religion. In fact, 
Next week, Gordon McDonald's going to speak, and that'll be great. You don't want to miss that. Following that, we're starting a study of the most anti-religious book that has ever been written. So more anti-religious than Das Kapital by Karl Marx or Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler or Mao's Little Red Book or, or anything by Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or anyone else you want to put out there. The most anti-religious book ever written is Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And, and it, is a, it is an effort to say you cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. That's not how it works. Stop trying. Stop trying to be good Stop thinking, if I'm good, God will look with favor on me and I'll get, you know, better parking or I'll, I'll, I'll have an easier life. Stop thinking that, that God looks down and says, oh, that person is trying hard or, or at the end of my life, I got to have more good than bad in order to go to heaven. No, that's religion. That's religion. We, we default to religion. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. We have a sense that there is a God. We have a sense that we ought to be doing things differently than we're doing. We have that hunger. But but the gospel is a very different message than try hard. It is accept, receive. All these metaphors, be born again, be saved, they're things that happen to us when we opt in. So the first thing I want to be sure you understand is it's not a religion. The second thing I want to be sure you understand is it's either true or it's not. I mean, there's either reason to follow and to go all in or not. <laughs> That's, Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. He's either God or he's not. And, and I say this because right now, the last 25 years, especially the last 10 years, we have been breathing air uh, in this Western postmodern culture that says what we have to find out is our truth. I have to discover my truth. I have to discover what's true for me. Okay? So I understand the reaction against modernity. Modernity had problems. It was thin and didn't satisfy our soul. So there's a, there's a cultural push away from modernity. I get that. But please understand, Jesus doesn't make a small postmodern claim. He's not saying I can be true for you and not true for you. He's making a capital T truth claim. He is saying, I am the meta-narrative. I am over everything. <laughs> I am God. I write the story. I define everything. That's the claim that Jesus is making. And either it's true or it's not. And you have to decide. So, roughly speaking, there's three camps. If you decide you're in the reject the resurrection, reject Christianity camp, then I would say, okay, I can actually respect that more than I can respect the next camp, okay? But here's my challenge. Because the stakes are so high, right? Because we're talking about eternity, we're talking about God, because the stakes are so high, and because the offer is so good, you owe it to yourself to look at this again. So we have a book for you. It's uh, called uh, The Case for Easter. It was written by a Chicago guy, uh, Lee Strobel. He used to be uh, an, uh, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He finished his law degree at Yale. He comes to Chicago. He works as an investigative reporter. He's an atheist. During that time, his wife becomes a Christ follower. And this is not good news. He does not want to be married to a Christ follower. So uh, after certain tension and fights, he says, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to undermine her faith, and I'm going to show that it's not legitimate. 
So he says, I will bring my religious training to bear and I will disprove Christianity. So if you want to disprove Christianity, Christianity tells you how to do it. I mean, in the same chapter I referenced before, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, look, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then all bets are off, everything's, everything's bad. So if you want to disprove Christianity, just, just undermine the resurrection. So that's what he did. He goes after the resurrection, and he ends up doing something that about uh, 250 people before him had ended up doing. And that is, he ends up becoming persuaded that Christianity is true, and he writes a book about it. So there's a whole genre of books of people who set out to disprove Christianity, and in the process, persuade themselves that it's actually true, and then they write a book about it. So he's written a book about it. It's called Case for Faith. That's a longer book than I think you'll read. So we're giving you the case for Easter. It's very quick, very quick, easy read. And I just want to say, you ought to think about this. I was traveling one point. I was going to a bad part of Africa. And, uh, and I'm, I'm at my doctor, and he's getting ready. To, he says, okay, here's the shots that they say you ought to get. And this one you got to get, this one you got to get, this one you should get. This one you have to think about. And I said, okay, why do I have to think about it? He goes, well, it's very expensive. And he said, the odds that you need it are very small. He said, but if you get this, if you contract this disease, first you'll wish you had died, then slowly you will die. And you will wish that you had gotten this shot. Okay, got to think about that. So I'm just saying, look, you got to think about this. Upside is huge. Downside, relatively small. You owe it to yourself. Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. More books, more music, more good stuff is being done in his name and in his honor than any other person who's ever lived. 60 billion people have walked on this planet. He's the most important influential person. He claimed to be God. Millions of people believe that he is. You ought to look at this. So if you're in the reject camp, pick up the book on the way out. Number two, if you're in the rethink camp, please hear this. This is a fine place to be for a while while you're figuring it out. <laughs> but figuring it out needs to be your priority because you are in no man's land. It doesn't work. It will never work, right? Do not think that Jesus is just a good moral leader. He's not. He never left that option open. Out deuce, out homo malus. He's either God or he's a bad man. So you either want to embrace him or you want to walk away from him. Those are the only options that make sense. So I have a Second book for you. This is a book that I wrote. It's a book I wrote seven, eight years ago. And I I had a sabbatical. I went over to Israel for a while, sort of doing the tracing, some of Jesus' steps. I was at some libraries in, in Europe, theological libraries. And I had three months to just study the life of Christ. And I've been a Christ follower now approaching 40 years. So I've been, I had been doing this for a long time. I was amazed the more I dug to see how the story fit together. Old Testament and New Testament, everything that Christ was claiming, how all the pieces came together. I was stunned by by what I saw. It was very rich, personal time, intellectually, uh, personally, spiritually. And so uh, I wrote a book trying to map out the things that I learned. We'll give you that book for free. If you're in the Rethinking Camp, it's a l- slightly longer than the case for Easter. Please pick it up. And if you want to talk about it after you read it, Send me an email, and we'll talk about it. Third camp. Finally, 
Those of you who showed up to say, I'm here to celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. I believe. I have, I have believed for six years or for 30 years, whatever. I, wanna, I just want to say two things to those of you that are here today. One, it's worth just reminding yourself that the fact that the tomb is empty means that your sins are forgiven. We live in a world where we don't get to escape our past very easily. And woe be unto you if what you did was captured on videotape and posted online. Now you really can't get away from it. But God is gracious. When Peter, who had rejected Christ, came back to Jesus, he didn't get a cold shoulder. He got an embrace. He got love. He got forgiveness. That is the ethic of Jesus. That is the love and the grace of Jesus. And the fact that he died and rose again means he is God and he can follow through on the promises to cleanse us of all of our sin and to give us his righteousness. Secondly, the fact that Christ rose from the dead means we follow. That's the promise. That just as he got a new body, we get a new body. This isn't la-la land. This is real stuff. We will get a body that works. We will go to a land that isn't broken. That is the promise that comes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is a preview of coming attractions. And so we gather to thank him and to worship and to sing. Well, I have 44 seconds left. So... You came in, you got a card, and on the back, you might have seen, these are the three categories. So here's the deal. If you want to do this, if you don't want to do this, do not do this. If you're going to freak out, don't do this. But there are uh, options for you to sort of say what camp you're in, also to list any prayer requests that you have, and finally, to indicate whether you would like to talk with somebody about where you're at. Okay. So we do something called a spiritual check-in, and it's a confidential one-hour chance to sort of talk and say, I'm here, this is what I'm thinking, this is how I process this. And you just have an opportunity for somebody to listen to you and to say you want to go forward. Or if you say, I, I, look, I want, to, I want to talk more about the claims of Jesus. I've got questions. I've got, I got questions you didn't answer. Okay, just put something down here that indicates you want to follow up. And after the service is over, you can Uh, Drop it in one of these baskets in the back, and uh, we'll get back in touch with you. Okay. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your love. On display on this day, on display on Friday when you sent your son to die in our place, we thank you, Lord God, for, um, for loving us so much that we have an opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to move into a kingdom where your rules are in place and where everything works and sin does not mar anything. Uh, we look forward to that day, Lord Jesus. I want to pray for those who are uh, here, who have uh, made a decision to reject you. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that uh, you would break through. I pray that you would unsettle them. I pray that, that, uh, that they would take the challenge and read Strobel's book and ponder and reach out to you and, and uh, that you would break through and, and show them that you are the God of heaven and earth. And I pray for those who are rethinking, Father, who are looking to be um, 
looking to move to one camp or the other. I pray the same thing. May they see as they, as they read, as they think, as they talk with others, may they come to understand uh, who you are, how great you are, how amazing uh, your plan is for them. And I pray for the rest of us who have gathered together today with hundreds of millions of others to declaim, to proclaim that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is God, and that our hope rests in him. We pray that you would, I pray that you would fill, inspire, encourage uh, all of us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.